social media is built for engagement. It doesn't mean good or bad. It just means to get people talking. And that's how it's architected. It's not, and, and, and by the way, not architected to any particular productive means other than to keep you on the platform engaging with it, right? So it, it's, it's not a good venue, and I've shared my views on social media before, but it's not a good venue that's representative of day-to-day life. Like if you go shopping, you're not gonna scream at somebody uh, in, in the grocery aisle, right? Like that's just not what's happening. Welcome to Casa de Arte, The Neighborhood, a twice a month podcast about creativity, spirituality, and the thread that holds them together, love. I'm Ashley Holstein, a mother, photographer, and tea drinker. I'm Louis Holstein, a father, community builder, and overall art enthusiast. In this episode of Casa de Arte, The Neighborhood, we talk to our favorite tech guru and political commentator, Bryce Page. We explore the current political landscape, the role social media plays, and what it's like to disagree with a family member who has an opposite view. Bryce, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Politics is so much of, I think, who we are, especially in this country. Um, Growing up, politics was a taboo subject for you at the dinner table and... Um, not something you guys really talked about, but when you got once you got to college, you made sure that it was something that was was something that was talked about. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think the, the answer is that in college it became insufferable. Uh, but it would be uh, it'd be uh, a lot of debating and arguments between me and uh, my younger brother. We were on uh, very opposite ends of uh, the political spectrum, and uh, uh, we argued a lot about it. Um, so you know, it, it wasn't something we discussed. There was a bunch of things we didn't talk about at, uh, at, at the dinner table. You didn't talk about money. You don't talk about politics. They were considered rude. And it just kind of came crashing in there because to me, uh, at a certain point, uh, once I was able to vote, I think in particular, uh, that it, it became super essential that uh, my, my brother see the world from my point of view, as I'm sure he uh, was uh, struggling to articulate the same uh, desire back to me. So it was definitely a war of that at the dinner table. Yeah, I, I just pity uh, my poor parents uh, having to, uh, you know, just try to have, you know, like, look, we're just having a salad. Can you two stop yelling at each other and be like, no, I'm going to win this argument. <laughs> Did the dinner table conversations ever get better? Yeah, actually, uh, my, my younger brother and I uh, actually really are much, much closer. So yeah, uh, the dinner table co- conversations on politics mostly involve uh, me trying to get my dad to not say uh, <laughs> unusual things about, uh, you know, uh, history or to uh, steer away from like, like I don't want to talk about um, submarines in World War II. <laughs> it's not an interesting topic for me. Pops, uh, which it, it doesn't matter where we started from. We, we kind of steer there anyway. Uh, <laughs> so we could have been talking about politics, but here come submarines so <laughs> or World War II. Is your brother as involved with um, reading and still as you know active actively participating in politics um, as much as you are? Yeah, so he's definitely an avid reader. Um, you know, the kind of interesting thing is and i think that there's you know there's a lot of symmetry in this uh you know so i'll say that my my brother and i were on uh ideological opposite ends of the spectrum um uh, we were uh and as time's gone on he's actually moved closer toward my orbit of of that ideological ideological spectrum if not exactly in the the same realm 
in his journey in reading more about American history and politics, he has moved much more over into a liberal mind frame of, you know, how he sees the world, how he sees what effective politics and policies we should be thinking about um, in the 21st century. In particular with him, because he works in technology, he's pretty concerned and shares some of the kind of viewpoints of somebody like Andrew Yang, who's very concerned about the role that automation um, will play in all of our lives um, in the not very distant future at all. Yeah, I, the reason why I ask, which is very fascinating, um, especially with um, talking about technology and the role that that will play, especially out of automation, um, is because I feel like a lot of us have family members that are polar opposites in our views of politics. And so navigating through that and having a healthy conversation, I think, is what you know, what I'm looking for, like, how um, do you manage that? <laughs> Obviously, coming from you being um, in high school, senior high school, and then kind of moving to, towards college, obviously, there's a lot of growth there. Um, but how do you manage those conversations? Uh, you do it wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the short answer, right? You say things uh, that are hurtful, or people say things that are deeply hurtful to you. Um, and that's actually what happened, uh, you know, uh, Without getting too far into the details of it, you know, there was a concern of mine that that as we continued to escalate the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I, my concern was around the draft. And my younger brother had said um, something along the lines of like, "Well, I'm not concerned about the draft because they wouldn't take me for medical disabilities." And I was I I, I, I was very hurt because it felt like a very selfish statement um, about his needs. And it was like, "Yes, but your two brothers." me and your older brother would be and now now let me let me set that all aside that that, that's a very very fringy argument right and i think that's that's some of the trap so let me just kind of point that out like you get into these like weird hypothetical spaces that don't really apply it would take quite a bit for the draft to be reinstated it would be uh probably the most unpopular political decision of in the last 50 years if not more right it's a it's a terrible decision nobody wants to do it (laughs) <laughs> at all at all at all at all and and we haven't needed to do it so it's it, it's a great case study of like you get into these fringe arguments then somebody says something really hurtful and i i was wounded and i didn't i didn't want to really talk with him about those things for for quite a long time um and, and our only way to kind of find common space again was to kind of return to things that we did want to talk about um whether it was movies or you know music or or, or those things but yeah, you're gonna hurt each other. And I, I think that, you know, we should get used to that expectation. And, and I don't know, try to build in, you know, what's far too far and, and not too far into those conversations. That's my only my only advice from here is, you know, trying to kind of plant some of those flags of like, well, hold on a second. Are you trying to change my mind? Because I'm not trying to change your mind. You, you know, are we just sharing opinions, just trying to have some of those like check ins about, um, you know, what are your goals? You, you'll end up in a conversation. That's the natural thing. Uh, that's 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 what we do. We engage. We we we, uh, we speak from emotion. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. We speak from emotions, but emotions kind of leave you without a direction of where are you in this conversation. And some of that's a little bit of my background working for Apple Retail for many years. Is like you can get super invested in an argument with the customer and be like, wait a second, excuse me, time out. What are we talking about? Right. <laughs> right? Like, right. And just trying to re- reinvestigate that. But yeah, I, you know, there's no getting around it. You're going to do it wrong. And 
your feelings are going to get hurt or you will hurt someone else's feelings. Uh, it, it's about, I think, you know, those relationships are different with family. You, you know, I think there's an obligation to come back here. They're your family. Um, I think with random people on the internet or Reddit, uh, you know, we don't have that obligation <laughs> at all. You, um, you said that you do not like the connotation that you can do or not do politics like you do with building model airplanes. <laughs> um, yeah. You're involved in politics even if you don't participate. Please expound on this. I yes. think it's a, a beautiful quote. Yeah, sure. Uh, and probably not uh, uh, unique to me. I am sure I lifted that from somewhere. But uh, yeah, I guess what I mean when I say you're involved in politics is that, you know, you have rights. And even if we don't talk about those rights, or if you have all the rights that you feel that you need, uh, then there are other ways that politics are still going to affect you, right? So whether it's you want to get into taxes or the entitlements that you receive from the government um, or that others receive from the government with the taxes you pay, you know, you're involved in politics. So I, I understand folks that say, I don't care about politics or I am frustrated by politics because those are much more specific statements. But, you know, the idea that someone's not involved with politics is I, I don't I don't accept that. Um, we're all involved with politics and the choice to not be involved is still a choice right so that's that's kind of how i see it and you know this isn't anything new politics has been around as long as we've had civilization so you've always been involved in politics everyone in your life has always been involved in politics how much they actually got out and participated that's a different question so going back for a second, you mentioned something a little while ago about um, hypothetical situations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I want to talk about that as we are in 2020, and I feel like hypothetical mm -hmm. situations are the name of the game. And I find it so interesting that on both sides, they're concerned about government overreach on the other side. So whether that's the left for the right, right for the left, how do you think we got here? Because I feel like that is the name of the game right now mm -hmm. is who's, if you put this person in power, they will destroy our country. That's basically what it is. I'm hearing on both sides. It's very simple. So one is, yeah. <laughs> it's happening right now. Our, our country is being destroyed. And then the other one is, well, if it gets flipped, then the country will be destroyed. And both of them are regarding government overreach. So how do you think we got here? And I guess... Yeah. Yeah. In a short amount of time, as you can tell, because I know it's going to be like this huge history lesson because it's a big thing. No, no, no. How do you feel like I, we got here in this moment? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, in one sentence or less, please give us that information. That's yeah. uh, <laughs> hard. That's hard. No, no. I, you know, I, and let me, let me, let me maybe qualify. I am not at all qualified to answer that question with a high degree of representation. All I can tell you is these are the things I read. This is the information I can gather from the folks that I know in my life, um, some of whom are political scientists, some are folks that I respect that have a, you know, a, a sense of American history uh, that I think is relevant. And I, I think that the way, what you're using as the frame up of the question is, you know, we're hearing this just highly hypercharged, uh, polarizing language. Um, and it is presented as coming equally from both sides. Um, we like or we need or we choose to present these in a very black and white statement. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I, I know plenty of people in my life that say blank person is destroying the country. And, you know, 
Maybe. Uh, you know, it, it's really hard to know contextually what the damage of a policy is. It takes time. Um, very rarely do we see a policy of an administration or uh, a law that's passed that has an immediate cataclysmic effect. These things take time and it takes research uh, and interest to, to kind of explain them. So I think that there's a little bit of a collision and these are, there are a few different themes kind of going on here, like in the national politics, and I'm just gonna create a couple buckets, but in national politics, polarization has been trending for quite some time. And I've shared with you a couple of articles and, and links that can kind of explain some of that, at least where can you pick it up from, um, and some opinions on that. I don't think I'm well educated enough to tell you this is the moment, this is the thing, because sure. there's folks that make arguments that you can date it to fairness doctrine, which affects the media and how media coverage is there. And, and that gives birth to 24-hour news networks that don't need to worry about balancing these things. So, you know, that was in 1987. So not a very recent event. Uh, so it's been in, you know, on the hopper for a while. Um, you could argue that Newt Gingrich ushered in a particular type of uh, wedge politics um, that has kind of pervaded uh, around the same time. Uh, you know, I think it became most effective when he became Speaker of the House um, in the in the contract with America. So, you know, I've heard that argument before. Which uh, is that single issue voter. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're either a pro-gun voter or you're not. And that means that you need to vote Republican or you need to vote Democrat. Um, that, yeah, the, the absolute definition of wedge politics. Um, and, and if you want to bring it more recently, you can trace it to, you know, the obstruction tactics that were leveraged around uh, Obamacare or appointing the Supreme Court justice at the end of Obama's term. Like those are kinds of those tactics that kind of exist. And, and you know, if, you're, if there's a theme, my view of this, of course, is that there has been some obstructionist tactics that are really damaging. And I've witnessed them from my perspective happening from a Republican side. But I understand that if you read the newspaper, if you're looking at this of like, how do I weigh these two things? how this is described and the short version of all of this is basically both sides doing the same things. And right. I, I guess I would just generally push back that it's all worthy of more investigation and no statement in a sentence like that is true. I, I think that that's the fairest thing that I can say that blank is destroying the country. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It, it, it can't alone. Uh, it, it's not helpful, but you know it's that nuance that we're missing. And I think that the the second category that we're really talking about of polarization really happens in day to day life, right? So there's national politics, there's national media, and there's plenty of influences on those. But I think the day to day thing, the thing that we're actually experiencing most, right, is that we're all screaming at each other on the internet uh, all the time. And why is that? I, you know, I think that there's a few different factors, but probably the biggest one is that social media is built for engagement. It doesn't mean good or bad. It just means to get people talking. And that's right. how it's architected. It's not, and, and, and by the way, not architected to any particular productive means other than to keep you on the platform engaging with it, right? So yeah. it, it's, it's not a good venue. And I, I've shared my views on social media before, but it's not a good venue that's representative of day-to-day -day life. Like if you go shopping, you're not going to scream at somebody uh, in, in the grocery aisle, right? Like that's just not what's happening. Um, at least in my day-to-day -day life, it could be for other folks, but you know, these things are not popping up. We, we have different boundaries in real life than we do on social media. And I don't think that we've developed a common language that makes any sense about what to comment on, how we share, how we engage, because 
you know, if we think about what Facebook and your page really is, it's like a diary. But the difference is, is that your diary is very private and this one's public and it's archived forever. And I still don't think that we as a, a society have really coped with how long uh, some of these conversations can exist. And I, I also don't think that the people that are building it are, are doing it in service of, of a greater good. I think they like to hide behind, oh, it's about free speech, but that's silly. And that's an ideal inside of a framework of other freedoms and ideals in a country. It's not the same thing for a media company, which also they refuse to be classified as. So I, I'd, I'd land a lot of this squarely on the feet of social media because we've been indoctrinated for the last decade or so to think and share and engage in that way. And it, 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 it's not reflective of life and, and things are more complicated than that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, when I will scroll through you know, Facebook, the amount of memes I don't know. I feel like they've gotten more. I mean, we've always had memes, but I don't know, man. It's like every every post is a meme now. I rarely yeah. see any kind. There's rarely a text um, a text status anymore of that mm-hmm. kind of thing or or a picture. I mean, maybe there's a couple photos. An but... educational post that's like insightful. <laughs> no, they're well like written. yeah, they're short, to the point, giving you mm-hmm. information that honestly, where is the source? Question mark. And right. they are literally episodes i mean I, I i was on there today and it was in a, in essence coronavirus is a lie coronavirus is real coronavirus is a lie coronavirus sure. is real yeah. and it's like i'm not exaggerating it's probably six posts that was like back to back like that and right i i think that like you're saying it's not helpful really because we don't walk around with these ideas on our own at the grocery store to get in fights with people about them we're not always walking with our opinions out there. Yeah. Well, I'm saying even we, getting that information, like where do they, they get this information, they share it because it makes sense to them, even though there's no source. Sometimes it's not even real news. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that that's the other part of it, right? Is that all of these platforms are built in a way that people know how to exploit and game, right? So, you know, one of the mm-hmm. series that I've been really interested in was this uh, series called Rabbit Hole, which discusses you know, the effect of uh, YouTube in particular, but it it branches into a couple of areas. And, you know, it it traces a timeline of folks that were, you know, radicalized by watching these really um, seemingly innocuous kind of starting point videos. But, you know, there are people that understand how the YouTube algorithm works. They race to figure it out and they will use it for propaganda. Like that is a thing. That is an absolute tactic. And it's a thing. It's a thing in particular um, with white nationalists. Right. It's, it's a it's a thing for people that are fighting white nationalists, too. So it's not an exclusive thing. But, yeah, there the information that's being passed around is highly suspect. And, you know, the none of the social media companies are responsible for it, which is totally different than a TV company. Right. And and that's the part that I think is, you know, just to bring it to like, so what is Bryce hates social media? What, so what? Um, I, I, I do. But I, I, do, I think the issue is that these companies are considered technology companies and are given broad immunity uh, to what happens on their platform. Right. So the New Zealand shooter posted and live streamed on Facebook what he did. Right. Facebook's not responsible for that. Nobody can sue Facebook for that because they have this broad immunity. Right. 
that's not that's good. Crazy. That's not no, good. And a lot that. of them have that broad immunity. And, and that's not an argument that I'm introducing. It's something from Kara Swisher. And I think more people should listen to her and, and check out some of her articles, particularly around that. But yeah, the broad immunity that, that social media companies have prevents them from being regulated the same way as similar types of businesses. I would say Facebook is just as much of a TV and print company as it is a place where you can just share dumb memes that isn't isn't exactly that, right? The fact that it can be both doesn't remove it from the fact that it reaches as many people as broadcast television. Not at all. Right. So what do you think is a way forward? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, th- <laughs> nothing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, there's a few things that are possible. It just depends what bucket you want to put in. I think I kind of laid out one of them is that for me, the moment you take away broad immunity from those social media companies, which oddly, the president and I uh, share that agreement, he actually threatened to do that, which a lot of people were left scratching their heads saying that would be bad for you. Uh, <laughs> but Yeah, really? <laughs> because of the, the spat with Twitter and so on and yeah. so forth. It's not worth getting into. But yeah, I think removing the broad immunity will certainly change how these companies that make a lot of money on advertising uh think about this idea presenting the ideal of free speech and maybe they are responsible for what's happening on their platforms and, and you know not to just keep picking on facebook instagram has this problem twitter absolutely has this problem youtube has this problem every social media company has a problem where these systems can be gamed um, by bad actors that that is that's just a reality and the question is is that the problem that they want to solve or is it any one of the other many that I'm forgetting in this particular moment? And I think the first step is removing that immunity where oh, you can do what you want. If you mess up, no problem. You know, that that's not acceptable. They need to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think the other things is I'd encourage more people, you know, just sticking with day to day life for a minute. Uh, delete Facebook. Stop giving them your information for free. Um delete all the other social media platforms uh, that you have. Uh, try to call more people. Uh, try to set up more Zoom meetings and have a, a meaningful conversation. Um, it's, it's far more enriching uh, than mm-hmm. any of these other platforms. Um, mm. And uh, read more uh, mm. or listen to audiobooks. I would, I would, you know, or, or, or podcasts or any, any and all of those, you know, I, I, no issue can be condensed into a meme uh, in any reasonable mm-hmm. fashion. Uh, right. And it's worth learning that nuance um, for a lot. And, you know, I think the other thing that's important on a day-to-day life component is to understand a couple things. Um, the first is what are effective argument tactics? And one of the, the best examples I can give to this is that, you know, we have, our brains are designed this way that we have um, an issue confronting deep truths about ourselves, right? Uh, cognitive yes. dissonance. Uh, so presenting somebody with hypocrisy or what you perceive as hypocrisy or what you can even concretely lay out as like you are being hypocritical, that actually will cause somebody to dig in further into their beliefs, right? Changing somebody's mind doesn't happen overnight. And I think actually the two of you probably know this really well, right? If you're walking somebody in a faith journey, that does not happen. The one time you're like, ah, I gotcha. And they're like, ah, you got me. Cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> ah! right. 
<laughs> you know, right. that's that's not at all how it happens. But that's kind of our expectations with if I present this argument enough or if I go down in flames for long enough on Facebook, there there no, that that's that's not gonna be what what happens and it's only gonna come through, you know, time, patience and and, and, and honestly being gentle with yourself so that you can learn to be gentle with others. I think those are some things mm-hmm. on a day-to-day life thing. On the national politics, I mean, <laughs> obstructionist, divisive politics can't be shown to be successful. And for now, uh, I think that as we ramp up into the next election, there's a, you know, there's one group that's betting that that's going to be really effective. Um, and you know, we'll see what the other group is is kind of saying, right? Uh, the 4th of July speech was like a, an absolute double down on like, let's get into us and them politics. And, you know, I, I can say any comments I have about it. Uh, I, I don't think it's effective. Um, and there's clearly a lot of work that we could accomplish uh, that meaningfully speaks to what people in the country want. But I think that realistically speaking, we're kind of waiting on a number of big shifts to happen. The electorate is massively changing. It's far less white than it was it's far less conservative than it was um and you know we're going through the census right now too so congress is going to be reshaped based on that as well so there's a a bunch of different factors i I think the only the unfortunate thing is that it's going to take time i don't think that we're going to see people backing away from polarizing politics well speaking about time um this will take time um i know that you recently had a son and so how do you communicate um, politics? Like, how do you... How will he? Or how will you, yeah, um, have that responsibility of... Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> although I do like the idea that I'd be sitting down with my uh, my almost two-year-old and saying, all right, this is the concept of the imperial presidency, and these are the flaws with it. Um, <laughs> no, no, put the blocks down. This is important. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I... Um, yeah, it, it keeps me up at night. Um, I, I don't know that I have a, a strategy that uh, my wife and I have, have laid out. Um, it, it's it's a bit of a ways away from now. So all I can speak to are, you know, what are the goals that I'd hope he'd have? Um, or I, I'd like for him, I'd like for him to be curious and to know that he can ask questions and, and not agree with me. I think that those are all really important things for me. Um, you know, and I, th- I guess the kind of second part of that is that I want him to learn and understand, uh, you know, how arguments and, and debate actually works. I think that that was a huge thing for me to learn when I went into college is understanding the various ways that um, people present arguments and, you know, learning about things like a straw man argument and things like that. That was in my freshman year of, of college, and I, I found that extremely helpful because it helps sort into what type of person are you arguing with? Is this, uh, you know, is this something that's worth engaging in or not? Uh, and, you know, more often than not, no, it's not. Um, but uh, was, you said that was a straw man or strong man? Straw man. Yeah, straw man. Straw man in three sentences. This, what's a strong man argument? A straw man argument is when you present a non-existent version of the opposing view. It's a very common tactic, right? You present the worst of what you see in other folks. Uh, I think my favorite thing is any discussion about COVID that somehow sharply swifts into socialism. I'm like, I, I didn't think we were talking about policy, but okay, uh, sure, COVID and socialism, sure. These yeah. So like, so I, so you have to wear a mask. Now we are becoming socialist. Yeah, that is not 
the, the, these these two things don't equate at all. We're not talking about how we're changing the taxation. We're not talking about any of those things. And I think that, right, because that's the statement, but it's a shortened thought process, right, that gets kind of memed into existence that it's really, mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope. This is the starting point. These are the yes. things that are going to happen of next. Of course, right. Never been shown to be true, right? We, we didn't become a hard right authoritarian dictatorship after 9/11, even though we granted the president tremendous powers uh, to to make war. Uh, that that didn't happen, right? The USA Patriot Act has not created uh, an unending di Bush dictatorship, regardless of what I might have said when I was 19. But you, but I mean, with that said, it's little steps with any change. So that's not to say that it it couldn't happen. Who says that in 20 years from now there is a president sure. that then becomes a dictator? I don't know. Sure. 40 years yeah. from now, maybe. And yeah. it was all because of that 2001 moment. I don't know. Yeah, you don't know what the next 20 years shape. Yeah, it could be bad, but that assumes that all government ceases to operate in a way that is just and fair to the people that they're supposed to represent. So yes, we can take some bad steps, but the whole point of the government that we've created is it's supposed to be able to be corrected. Right? There's not supposed to be anything that we can do that you cannot undo. That's the that's the point. Some things are really difficult, and that's why they're you know we make them really difficult to change. It's really difficult to amend the Constitution in a damaging way, that, mm -hmm. for a reason. You know, mm -hmm. so some of it I think is just kind of like I understand the emotion behind it, but it doesn't necessarily connect to the factual structure that we're, we're inside of. So yeah, I would say it's still a, a straw man because it, it precludes all of these other factors that, that influence and not the least of which is, you know, do, gov do Americans want to be a socialist nation? No, you know, not by and large, right? Even though we have many socialist entitlements. So, you know, I think that we still struggle through that. So that's what I think is a very big distortion is if you ask the average American, no, they don't support socialism. Right. What do you think is going to happen in the next election cycle? Um, yeah, I, you know, there's some things that we can already see happening is that, you know, I think the current administration, the only direction to go is to really double down on the things that they thought were really effective, which are white identity politics um, and and to ramp up attacks and negativity um, on the opponent. So I think that that's what the current administration is going to stick to is a, is a playbook to try to repeat what, the, what happened in 2016. Um, but I think in the end, I don't know how successful that's going to be. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden was never my favorite candidate, but there's a lot of good momentum. And barring some serious slip ups and, and, and mistakes, which are totally possible, I think he's he's on track for to be in a good spot. Um, and so, you know, if I was to bet on it, yeah, I, I think Joe Biden has what it takes to be the next president. But that's not the most interesting thing that could happen, because supposing that he became the president and we still had a very divided uh, Senate or if we ended up with a divided Senate and House, then you'll see the same thing that we had. Um, you know, these, these past two years where not a whole lot legislatively, um, That's happening. yeah, or can, can get accomplished. So that will, that will be very frustrating as well. So then we have to wait two more years to see substantive changes. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we'll see plenty of things kind of getting kicked up to the Supreme court for, you know, culture wars to kind of get ruled on, which isn't great, but is probably the case. So, you know, my, my rosy <laughs> world is that 
you know, we'll we'll see some interesting things in the Senate. I just don't know that it's been proven at all that Democrats can can win the Senate back. Um, that's been a that's been a very difficult thing for them to do over the past twenty years. You sent me a book uh, called The Fifth Risk. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. remind me of the author. Uh, Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis, yes. So author of Moneyball and The Blind Side and The Big Short. Um, wonderful writer, and obviously for our listeners, surely you've seen one of the three of those movies, all very <laughs> successful uh, movies and um, just great stories, I think. I, I'm all I'm always here for a good story. Um, and now I've seen that uh, this book has been picked up by the Obamas. Um, I think it's within their Netflix deal, so how they're going to adapt it, we're not sure. Um, but the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway, and I've been telling everybody I know to read it, is just how much we do not have a, a grasp or understanding um of the federal government and how mm-hmm. it really, yeah, it works. how it works, how it works, and there's definitely some critique on our current administration. That's kind of what the whole piece is: is this just mm-hmm. really disturbing and horrible transition from Obama to Trump? But I like that it wasn't just about that; it was so much right. more. Um, without putting words in your mouth, do you think everyone should read it, and why? <laughs> like, what was the biggest thing for you about this book? I know for me, it, it, was, it was big. I think most people should read it, um, I, and I think it's just because most people should read more Michael Lewis uh, because I really yeah. like him. Um, I like a smart Alec narrating most things, uh, which yeah. is exactly what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I think he's a really compelling guy that is often driven by data that can be at, le- at least pretty wholly anchored in fact. Right? I, I don't. I don't think he gets into the same place that some of those contemporaries of like a Malcolm Gladwell, where you're like, that doesn't make any sense, Malcolm. What the hell are you talking about? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's not that. Um, he. He. I, I think he presents a lot of things that are are are, are imminently reasonable. Um, and I think that fifth risk in particular is something that we should we should read just because there's so much. I, I think there's this kind of not think there's there's been a long trend of you know uh, even from the reagan era i think i sent you the clip of you know the nine scariest words in the english language are i'm here i'm from the government i'm you know I'm, I'm here i'm from the government i'm here to help or something along those lines that i'm butchering right now and, and you know this kind of anti-government uh thought processor that we shouldn't have a big government and uh, i think that this book lays out a really good case of There are a lot of things that the government does because it would not make any sense for a business to do. They would not be able to manage them. Um, And and it it can do some really miraculous things. And it's not a defense of every single aspect of government, but there are, it kind of points out some really big areas that are invisible, I think, in most day-to-day life. And, And hopefully that changes. I think that's, that's another thing that kind of more government should really try to do is to say, hey, we're doing this. This is your government working for you. But this kind of lays out so many different examples, whether it's the fact that all of our early warning and weather predictions that we rely on as Floridians, just as an example, is built off of this massive data uh, gathering that's that's a global enterprise. And as that becomes more divided, it's less and less effective, right? Like these are those kinds of things that you wouldn't think about it. I never thought about weather balloons all across the world. And this book has a great way of kind of introducing you to a person, then diving deep into this topic. And whether it's it's that or managing a project that'll cost $100 billion over the next 100 years, uh, you know, there's some scope and scale that I think most people aren't ready to think about. And it's just interesting to see that, you know, people are kind of quietly doing that all the time. Well, this was great. I really hope people embrace the fact that we run in a guy with a theater degree to school us on politics. (laughs) 
But we're almost out of time, Bryce. And before we leave, we always end our podcast with art and artists that we're consuming or inspired by lately. So we want to know what's influencing mm. you in the art world. So I've been listening to some new music and I've been going back through some old movies, but on the music front, um, it, and I, I tried to put together my, my short list and I can share some links if folks want to share it out. Um, but uh, Haim, yes. Run the Jewels has a new album, M. Ward, Elder, Little Dragon, Caribou, Beach Bunny. I've been listening to all of those albums a lot. Um, and then I've been watching a lot more films. I've been on a Villeneuve kick, uh, as I've, I've talked with Lewis about, but uh, I went through Enemies and Prisoners uh, within a week. It was like, well, let's just go ahead and do all of it. Um, I watched... Or watch Heavy. Midsummer, and I, I guess in, in this particular time, I would recommend you know people should watch more sad space movies like Ad Astra. I thought that was really it was really pretty, but sad space movies, huge fan. Interstellar, great movie. Ad Astra, fantastic. Uh, Arrival, fantastic. He's yeah, sad space movies, guys, check that out. Sad. <laughs> or Moody, Moody, okay. fine. Let's say Moody. They're not exclusively sad, moody. but you know they skew sad. <laughs> Enemy, did you watch Enemy with me? I think I watched it by myself. No, I didn't watch it with you. Enemy left me on my head. <laughs> like, yeah, what a ride that movie is! Crazy, that movie is crazy. I you yeah. saw, you, you said you watched Midsummer yeah, as well. Midsummer, I, I really liked it. It's it's a it's a disturbing movie, right? So let me let me let me preface all of that. It's it's graphic. It's very violent. It's also very pretty. Uh, yeah. And it has really, really interesting music. Yeah. So I'm always down for a super creepy uh, soundtrack, and that one absolutely has it. So the other reason, uh, another film I like with a horribly creepy soundtrack is Under the Skin. So you know, listen to that if you want to have chills, yeah. uh, and you know, don't don't listen to it while you're walking alone at night <laughs> at all. That's funny. Um, okay, well, thank you so much um, for your time and. Um, and for always uh, stretching me um, in my polis- politics and understanding of policies. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's really important. It's really important to have somebody that you can um, grow with. Yes. In that, because it is, I think, like you said, it is something that it's ongoing. It's a journey, truly, to to figure out and make sense of um, this world and the democracy that we live in. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Casa de Arte. If you love this episode, be sure and rate us and share with your friends. We would also love to hear from you. You can tag us on Instagram at Casa de Arte Podcast or email us at Casa de Arte Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, go create and give your art a home.